Today, we talk about how to run food tours, the best part of being a corporate chef, and how to find brands to work with. Take it away, Debbie. It's kind of being in the right place at the right time. So I am out there all the time looking for new products, looking to see what's going on, looking what's happening in the industry. And by doing that, I get to meet a lot of people. If you see somebody demoing a product or a brand in the store, ask them, develop a relationship with them because most of those jobs are passed from person to person, people that you know. Hey there, I'm Jason Loxton, and this is Making Bacon, about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. As bloggers, we uh, often forget that there is a whole world out there outside of our blogs. We get so caught up being online, writing our recipes, and relying on ads and affiliate links that we forget that there are things offline. Whether that's tours and demos, events and classes, there's a lot of things that can that you can do in the real world, at least when the pandemic is finally over. It can be really intimidating, though, to get started. And luckily, today's guest is the perfect person to help us figure out how to do that. She's been running and growing her own company for over 20 years. She started as a cooking instructor, but added food. But she added farm, food, and wine tours to the California coast. And as a gardener, she participates yearly at her local garden show and speaks frequently to garden clubs around Southern California. She is now consulting on edible gardens and cooking instruction virtually. I can't wait to learn from today's guest, Chef Debbie from Deb's Kitchen, Edible Gardens and Cooking Tips. Debbie, welcome to Make and Bacon. Hey, hi, Jason. Glad to be here. Really glad uh, you joined us today. I think your expertise on the things you've been doing is just fascinating and something that a lot of bloggers can learn from. And I can't wait to dive into all that. But what I always like to start each interview with is what is it like around your dinner table on a typical day? There are no typical days. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we're together, just my husband and myself. And sometimes we eat separately. It depends on what goes on during the day. And we usually have music playing. And sometimes he had neck cancer. So he had uh, surgery and chemo. And he's got a lot of scar tissue. So he can't talk and eat at the same time. Hmm. So he sometimes reads his book on Kindle. And I read the newspaper on my computer. <laughs> nice. What, what type of music do you like to listen to? We like kind of soft rock, you know, something really nice and smooth for dinner time anyway. Nice. I, I think you do so many amazing things in the world of food that bloggers can learn from. And I want to first dive into your food tours. I know that, like a lot of things, your tours are currently on hold during the uh, pandemic. But uh, pre-pandemic, what did a typical tour look like? Well, we usually travel separately up the coast about four or five hours. And everybody uh, stays at a really nice hotel. They have a a great breakfast spread. They have beautiful grounds, lots of flowers and stuff. So that's on Friday. And then we host a dinner party at my friend's house. And everybody comes over. We do a little demo and have a really nice big dinner. And then on Saturday, we meet at the hotel. And I hire Coy Barnes, who has been running the Wine Wrangler, for just about 20 years. We met when he was first starting and I was first starting. And he takes all of us over to wine country in Paso Robles. And we do usually a cave tour at uh, one of the wineries and a wine tasting. And we have a nice spread for lunch. 
they have beautiful grounds. It's called Halter Ranch if you want to look it up. And then we do an olive oil place. We visit some farms. We're during, we always go in October because it's, it's harvest season. And there's always pumpkins and stuff like that all over the place. And then on Sunday, we used to go to another, either an organic farm, another olive oil farm, and it's a half day. And then everybody pretty much takes off after lunch. So that's the entire weekend. And we keep sounds, you pretty busy. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's really great. The little town we stay in, Cambria, they have a scarecrow contest. And it's just grown over the years. And all the stores have scarecrows outside. And now it's kind of up and down Highway 1. And it's really fun. They're really great great costumes and uh, scarecrows. So what goes into a scarecrow contest? Is it the most realistic one? Is it the most fancily decorated one? How, how does one win a scarecrow contest? Well, I think it's kind of a combination of things. They have a group in Cambria that make all the scarecrows. So some of the stores make their own and it's how realistic it is, how scary it is, how unusual it is. All kinds of things like that go into it. We have Molly Sinan says, hi, Debbie. Hi, Mal. And we also have uh, Vicki Nordling says, hi, Deb, looking good. <laughs> hi, Vicki. Nice to see you. So on these tours, how many people generally are a part of your tour group? We don't take any more than 12. So it's usually uh, 10 to 12 people, 12 at the max. That way everybody so, can get kind of a personalized uh, thing. They get to talk to the winemaker sometimes. Uh, they talk to the, the guys in the caves. And sometimes we'll do a, ta a wine tasting in the cave, which is really fun. Oh, so nice. unusual experiences. So it's a nice small group that it's nice, intimate, right. probably. And people can you can meet everyone in the group. You're not just kind of being shuffled around from location to location. Right, right. How did you find these different places that to work with, to take people to? Well, years ago, when there were only maybe 50 to 90 wineries in Paso Robles, my husband and I vacation in Cambria. We have for a very long time. And I'm food obsessed and <laughs> wine and olive oil and all of that. And so we would go and visit these people on our own. And at the time, I was teaching as a professional chef at Williams-Sonoma. And I would come back and I'd, I'd tell my students, the classes were small groups too, like 10 to 12 people. And I tell them, oh, you know, I just got back from this winery or that winery and I brought you some new olive oil to try. And one day somebody said, well, when are you going to take us? <laughs> so an idea was born and we kind of flushed it out. And I got in touch with some of the people that I knew at the wineries and the olive oil places. And we set up a tour together. And the first one, I have to say, was a little rough, but it came, it came off pretty well. And they've just gotten better over the years. And our friend Christina Peters joined our group and she took a lot of photographs for us. And I put together some videos. You can see some on my YouTube channel, which is Chef Debbie. And showing you the properties and showing you the people. And so you can get a, like a little virtual vacation just watching the videos so if, if, that's pretty much how i did it that's awesome if, if any of you don't know christina peters she does she's a photographer does amazing stuff she was on the podcast probably about two or three months ago and if you she also runs a was a food photography club um, yes. so 
you want to learn more about food photography, she is a great person to to get to know and to check out her her equipment or her uh, website and her course. So were most of the people interested in working with you? Like, did you, you know, when you approach them and say, I want to bring in this group of people to like behind the scenes tours or they like, (laughs) absolutely. They love it. They and and they look forward to us. We go back to some of the same places every year because they're so unusual, especially like Halter Ranch with the cave tours. And we always visit the groves on 41. She started this olive oil uh, farm. I'm not sure how many years ago. And the site is so beautiful. She's got a big, huge barn where she does classes and events and she sits down and she really takes her time and teaches you about olive oil and how to taste it and how to use it. And so they love sharing their experiences with you. They really love having us there. So many food bloggers are tied into their local food communities, whether that's farmers markets or local purveyors that I think it's your your concept of finding people that want to want this kind of knowledge and then relying on the people that you've met over the years and showing them to them, I think is such a, just a great concept. Was there anyone, have you ever got pushback from bringing in groups or are most people just like the, the olive uh, grove that they're just all on board? No, usually they're all on board. If, if the farm or the ranch or the uh, winery is not public already, Sometimes there's a difficulty there only with liability and getting people on their property or that they're actually farmers and they're, they're out there working. So they don't have time to do that. I did have, I did have one at the oyster farm because we do it on a weekend, you know, for people to come, people who work all week and the oyster guy works all weekend. So that was a little difficult and we never managed to get that together. But uh, for the most part, no. That's great. Yeah, definitely working around people's, when they're working farms, trying to work right. across their <laughs> their schedule is always, always interesting. <laughs> I think that's the hardest part is to find people who are open and willing to do that. But now I think there's like over 200 wineries. So we have a lot of choice. And we try and limit to where we go. We go to the the west side that's a a little bit cooler than the east side of Paso Robles, only because of time, so that we can hit three places in one day and get varied experiences. If we have to drive out to the other side of Paso Robles, it's two hours. And so that really eats up the the time of the day. Do you... When you're getting people around, do you have buses? Does people have their own cars? Like, are you in charge of providing transportation or? Well, no. So you drive yourself there and then you drive yourself from the hotel to the dinner party. And really other than that and any sightseeing that you want to do, we put you in a van and everybody goes together. What does, what's your general charge for one of these tours? It's about $1,200 now. And your food, so you have you have a dinner party on Friday. You have lunch on Saturday. You're free for dinner Saturday night so that you can, you know, we're back by four so you can take a drive up the coast or whatever you want to do. And then it includes your lunch on Sunday plus all the wine that we carry with us everywhere. <laughs> it's it's not, all not about the good, wine. <laughs> not a good tour if you're not carrying wine around with you. No. <laughs> Uh, do a lot of people come back for future tours or is it usually oh, sure. they, so you have some regulars that have gone I, to uh, multiple I, ones? I do. I had a group of five women 
who came three years in a row. And then, you know, COVID happened and kind of squashed the tour for this year, unfortunately. And I saw that you also have done tours of, I think, your local farmer's market. Is that correct? Or the food market? I used to do the farmer's market. I, I don't so much anymore. It's really... The farmers markets are so busy; it's really hard to get a group in there. I do small groups to that. We are starting farm tours to the San Diego area, which is probably an hour south of us, right here, where you, t- you again you drive your own car, and we set up the tours. We have a mushroom farm. We have a a nursery that, that we like to visit. So sometimes there's projects included. And a cooking class or a demo, we try and always get that in. And those people, I so all of the people that I take normally, I garner from my cooking classes and my my appearances, my speaking engagements, all of that. So you you would they would sign up basically for a class. They would meet you at like the mushroom farm. You they would get right. a tour of the mushroom farm or the process and how it all works. And then you would either teach them to cook or have a a nice meal that you've prepared for them. I assume using some of the ingredients from the from the farm. And it's Absolutely. kind of like just a all inclusive experience for them. It sounds right. amazing. It's a full day. Nice. And then do the mush. Can they buy stuff from the mushroom farm as well? Like, do they do they have a stand they, or anything? They, they usually give them a flat or a half a flat of mushrooms to take home right. as a as a gift. And I, I have a sponsor uh, that I used to work for, Melissa's Produce, and they send their produce with me wherever I go. So they they always give me unique items to put in gift bags for the guests. So no matter where you go. With me, you always get a gift bag that's full of Melissa products. That sounds amazing. I wish I was in California. <laughs> <laughs> we have to come and visit sometime. I'll take you on a tour. I, that, that is a deal. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I just love that concept of, you know, getting people that love food in front of people that are producing the food and giving them a behind the scenes look at kind of how, how the food gets, gets created is just uh, fascinating to me. Right. So that's my job. I, I do all of that. And I never realized how many people don't have food background. They don't have kitchen knowledge. They don't have farm knowledge. And so I try, I try and impart that in my newsletters I send out a newsletter bi-monthly, and it usually has recipes in it, garden strategies, all kinds of different unique things that seem really easy for me, but that's because I'm immersed in that industry, and I realize that other people aren't necessarily so, so I try and bring them that information too. Yeah, a lot of times we forget how much we actually know that the a regular person doesn't necessarily know because we're so steeped in food and you know you talked about melissa's produce how did you get in touch with them originally i think you were one of the the corporate chef for them is that correct i was yes i we had there were five of us i think in the beginning and you know what it it was a piece of luck i had lost my job after 9 11 and I just got on, I don't even know what website it was. It was one of the job sites. And back then, that was like 2002, I think I got the job. There weren't very many places online where you could look for a job. And I saw saw they were looking for a 
a demo assistant. And at that point in my life, I wanted to kind of slow down. I was coming off 60-hour work weeks working in a gourmet deli as the, as the chef. And so I thought it was perfect. And I've always loved Melissa's. They have the cutest little logo with the little carrot in it. And so I sent them an email and the head chef called me back and he called me in for an interview. And it was for demoing offsite in grocery stores in the produce section. And I thought that was perfect. I love that because as an organic gardener, I have a lot of information about produce and I love the seasonality of California and our produce. And the guy who was interviewed right behind me, he actually just graduated from culinary school and they thought I was overqualified for the position. So they hired Tom, who's a great guy, Tom Fraker. He's still with Melissa's. And I was told, we're going to keep your resume on file. And how many times have you heard that? You know, (laughs) (laughs) but in actuality, in about four months, he called me back and he said, I have a chef position for you. Are you interested? And so I went in and I interviewed and they gave me the job and it was a fabulous job. So in the morning, this was the most fun thing. We had these little carts and we'd go out into the warehouse and we'd pull out whatever produce we wanted to use that day to create recipes. So we were, it was a real liberal kind of creative position. And it was my job also to train the sales staff on how to train the sales staff in the supermarkets, what to do with this produce. They would bring me stuff from South America that I've never seen before. (laughs) I learned so much more about produce when I was there. And we did lots of demos and we had just finished a, a video from still photographs from way back when we had all the sales staff come in and they all made pumpkin pies for the <laughs> holidays. It was really fun. And they really learned a lot, you know? So what that was, was interesting. What was the most interesting vegetable that you cooked with? What stuck out that you really <laughs> This is a great story. So when I first started, there's a forager that we used in, in Washington. And uh, all the garlic was starting to come into season. And so he was sending all kinds of garlic, lots of different kinds of garlics that that we had to cook with and, and see what we liked about it, what we didn't like about it, all of that. So that was my job. That was my very first thing that I did when I was there. And I'm allergic to garlic. I can't, I can't eat it. And the smell drives me crazy because I can't eat it. So I had cases and cases of garlic in the kitchen. We had a huge kitchen. It was like 1,500 square feet. So I would I would make something, and I'm, I'm really guessing at the seasoning for it because I couldn't taste it. So I made all the other chefs taste it and tell me what was wrong with it and see how I could fix it. And I never told anybody. Well, after I left many years, I told them that I was allergic to garlic. <laughs> So what does a corporate chef do? Like, I understand. So you went through the warehouse, you pulled out all this food and that's what you used. But what did you, are you cooking for people to eat? Are you cooking for recipes that they can share with people that are buying the produce? What, what all is involved? It's a little bit of all of that. So part of our job was to develop new recipes for the website. So, you know, I put thousands of recipes up on the website and so did the other 
chefs. Sometimes we cooked for some staff. We cooked for visiting guests who would either come in, you know, the the big guys from like Ralph's and Pavilions and the big grocery stores where they carried a lot of our product. We'd cook for them to show them, you know, this is what you can do with our products. So it was basically highlighting everything that came through the warehouse. And it was all about teaching and education. We would do radio shows. I even did a couple of TV spots with someone who was associated with Melissa's. So it was a, a lot about the education, a lot about creating. And when you create a recipe, it takes a, a, a long time. You know, you're sitting at the computer and you're you're developing the recipe, and then you have to go out in the kitchen and you have to cook it and change the recipe as you need to because what you envisioned that you could do doesn't come out very well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more than just sitting down and writing a recipe. But that was a big, big part of our job is writing recipes. Was there ever any type of produce that you just couldn't get it to do what you wanted that you kept revising the recipe and you just eventually gave up on the path you were going down? Not that I can think of. You know, we were a great team. We all worked together. So if I was having an issue with something, the guys would come out and help me and vice versa. And sometimes we were all in the kitchen cooking at the same time, which was. That would prove it, right? (laughs) Yeah, it was fun. They were great guys. I really, really enjoyed working with them. And uh, it was a sad day when I left. Uh, It sounds like a great experience. And you've done a lot of work with other brands now as well, doing demos. How do you find these brands that are interested in having you do demos and events and and work with you? You know, it's kind of being in the right place at the right time. So I am out there all the time looking for new products, looking to see what's going on, looking what's happening in the industry. And by doing that, I get to meet a lot of people. So one of my first rep jobs or ambassador jobs was with Breville. And I happened to meet the chef at Bloomingdale's. We just got talking one day and the Breville uh, rep came in and she was looking for somebody to help her do demos. And they didn't pay, but she gave me products. So I said, well, sure, I'll do that. And one thing just kind of led to another. So I worked for Breville for many years. And our head boss, at, after I, I left, when he left, he went to another company, ScanPan, and he called me and asked me if I wanted to be an ambassador for ScanPan. So one thing kind of led to another, and it, it really helps to be out there. If you see somebody demoing a product or a brand in the store, ask them, develop a relationship with them, because Most of those jobs are passed from person to person, people that you know. So the gal who took my place at Breville is a friend of mine that I met through Williams-Sonoma. So she now does my Breville job and I do a ScanPan job. That's awesome. So it's amazing how much networking, we don't think about it as bloggers a lot, but the the networking is huge for finding a lot of these opportunities. And like you're saying, the easiest way to find opportunities is to be out there and right. interacting with a, a lot of brands and a lot of people. And you'll hear about a lot more stuff. 
Right. And I do a, a garden show at our big local mall here every year. Uh, you're a master and, gardener, right? I'm a master gardener and I'm a master um, food preserver as well, which is two different programs through UC Davis. And so you can get a demo, an hour demo at one of these garden shows, even if you're not a gardener, if you're a cook or you're a blogger, just approach them at the garden show, find out who's running it and and tell them what you can offer to their guests. And they have, they have different uh, demos every hour from cooks, from, from gardeners, from people who whittle wood, all kinds of things. Master preservers are always there and the master gardeners are always there. So everybody talks about something different. But those are great opportunities to meet lots of people and to get lots of people on your email list as well. How do you, do you generally pitch the ideas? Do they come to you and say, we're looking for this type of topic? What's a, what's a good approach to try to carve out something that you can talk about? You, you need to pitch your ideas. You need to work on your ideas. What are you an expert at? What can you talk about that, that you know that other people may not know? That, that want to learn how to do something. So figure out what your expertise is and then offer that, build something around that. that definitely makes sense. That's a, I've never thought about doing, approaching it that way, but it, uh, it definitely seems like a great way to get in front of a lot of people. And you've also done a lot of cooking classes. Where did you usually teach right. those? Well, the, the gourmet deli that I was running in 1999, we opened a new store. We had a huge kitchen and what we did meal replacements. That was when it was first, very first starting. So we would have all of our food packaged and refrigerated or frozen. We also had some hot stuff to go, but this, the cooks were done by two o'clock in the afternoon. So we needed to figure out how to put that huge space to use, how can we use that square footage to add to our, our bottom line? So I went to my friends who were chefs who taught cooking classes, and I asked them, will you come and teach cooking class at my store? And so I did that for about six months, and then one of them said, well, why aren't you doing this? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I, I can't do that. And the, the first one that I did I was so nervous. I was scared to death. But then you get hooked. You get really get to enjoy it. You get to meet the people who are buying these unique items from you. We carried a lot of specialty products and people didn't know what to do with them. So some of the companies who produce these specialty products would put out recipe cards so that you could figure out how to use it. But we started doing these cooking classes a couple times a week. And when I left there, I kept doing the, the classes. I would find little nooks where I could teach. Like I taught in an olive oil store for seven years just because I got to know the owner. And she said, we'd like to have you come and do a demo. And I, I approached her and said, well, what about cooking classes? You know, here's what we can do. And I used all of their product to to do the cooking class. So that ended up in after-class sales for the store as well. So it was a beneficial relationship. 
it's a great way to approach trying to get a demo or a cooking class job that if you find a, a place like that, that has unusual ingredients, pitch them on, I can teach right. your customers how to better use your, what you're selling and they're going to buy more of them. I just need the space in your, in your store and we can, we can work together to kind of move things forward. Exactly. What was the most uh, interesting cooking class that you had? Oh boy. <clears throat> Probably the most interesting one was at the Aquarium of the Pacific. They have a small theater that holds about 100 people. And they wanted me to do a cooking class introducing produce to seniors. And it was focused towards senior nutrition. And I asked Robert Schuler, who is the marketing, one of the marketing directors for Melissa's Produce. So he brought in this huge, huge table of really unique produce and and I made a dish with it and we filled that auditorium and it was it was one of the most fun things that I've ever done and all my old Melissa chefs came to see me that day so that was a little nerve-wracking but it was really fun you had so some more the, experts even there the, even the aquarium you know you, you have to think outside the box of where you can do a little demo and then the the hard part is trying to figure out how you're going to do that demo if you don't have a kitchen. Yeah, you definitely have to work around what you have or an induction burner yeah. or see exactly. You don't need uh, eight pots going at once for the meal if you don't have a, a big a big stove to cook them on. Right. And the simpler, the better. The less, the less equipment you have to use, the less intense the recipe, the better really needs to be, but it needs to be something different. It needs to be teaching people something of, that they wouldn't think of doing themselves. Mm -hmm. I've uh, done a few different cooking classes now, and it's always such an enjoyable experience being able to connect with the people. And I feel like as bloggers, a lot of times we write a recipe and it goes up on our website and we might hear a few comments if we're lucky right. and that's it. And then you do a cooking class and there's all these people talking back and you're getting live feedback on what's happening and you get to see their faces light up when they do something they've never thought of ever doing in their lives. And it's really, it was a really rewarding experience the few times that I've done it. Very much so. In the beginning, I tried to script my cooking classes and I quickly realized that that's not possible. You really have to wing it because you don't know what kind of feedback you're going to get from the audience and it could change the whole trajectory of your class. What was the what was the biggest wrinkle that happened during a class that you had to really change direction? When I blew all the fuses in the store. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> we really had to wing it then. And you have to you have to be able to think on your feet and be quick about, okay, now what am I gonna do? I have no power. I have I have nothing to do. Okay, so I'm gonna take all this stuff and I'm gonna make you a really great salad, you know? I think people enjoy seeing that too, because a lot of home cooks, I think, feel like they're the only ones that screw up and the, the experts like us never, anything never goes wrong with us, right? right so it's, right. it's nice when they see something go horribly wrong and then you have to recover from it. They're like, oh, maybe if something goes wrong when I'm doing it, I can recover now too. That's the thing about doing stuff live. You can't, you can't cut it out of your tape. You know, it's, it's out there. It's just there and you have to get, get over it. <laughs> no matter how bad it is. 
Have you been doing any uh, classes virtually? Have you started exploring that during the pandemic? Yeah, I am exploring it. I, I have recording issues. You know, I don't have anybody working with me. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to learn how to do uh, short, interesting videos by myself, which is really super challenging. Christine has helped me a lot in equipment and things like that. And then I have to edit it. So I'm learning how to do that too. It's that's a whole new project now with COVID. Yeah, the editing is a art form all of its own and the recording by yourself can definitely be very difficult. <laughs> yeah. What, what types of classes are you exploring right now? Right now, I'm working on some edible gardening. I'm trying to teach a lot of people started vegetable gardens in the spring when COVID hit. And I think that, you know, by the time you get to the end of summer, there's a lot of work that goes into uh, vegetable gardening. And it can be done easily enough. You just have to know how to do it. And most people just jumped right in, bought a bunch of plants, threw them in the ground, and thought that they're just going to grow. Well, that doesn't necessarily happen. So I'm working on some virtual edible gardening classes and I do consultations and I will even show you how to put to bed, put together a vegetable bed, a raised bed and how to plant it and what to plant into it and how to take care of it, depending on how much time you want to spend in that garden. And then the other end of that project is I'm going to end up taking those items and take them into the kitchen and teach people how to use them in their home. I definitely remember when I had a big garden getting like, you know, 20 squash per week would start coming out. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, yeah. it's great for the first few, the first week. And then the next month you're like, oh my gosh. Squash is squash. really good about producing a lot <laughs> and it likes to hide. Yeah, I don't know if you realize that. So you've got a, a three-inch zucchini, you come back the next day, and it's a, a foot long, you know? Yep. Yeah, it's amazing how, how quickly it grows and then how big they get if you if one's hidden yeah. under in the back under the leaves and you come out there, you're like, oh, it's this big now. It's enormous. And your neighbors start begging you, please don't bring me any more zucchini. Yeah. What's, uh, what do you think if someone's interested in gardening – what vegetables are ones that they should start with that there's a bigger difference in flavor from what they can get at the grocery store and also they're not, you know, too finicky to, to grow? So in order to get really great flavor out of your vegetables, you need to find either a nursery that grows organic, unique transplants, which we have several here in Southern California, or uh, you learn to plant seeds. And some of the easiest ones, like you said, Squash is really easy to plant and maintain. It takes a a bit of water because that's their consistency. They're all water. Some of the easiest things would be like radishes and carrots and beets. And all those things can go in the ground right now, at least in Southern California. Uh, If you get early frost, like November, and the ground freezes by December, you have plenty of time to do a round of radishes and beets and carrots if you get them in the ground right now. And those mostly do well by seed. We always start people off with radishes. When we do gardens for schools, kids' gardens, we always have them plant the radishes because they sprout so fast and they're done in like four weeks. And it always excites the kids. 
they always taste so good too. They're have so much better right. flavor and they're less peppery or more peppery depending, but like it's a better bite to them. I feel like than what you can find at the, you know, the grocery store definitely. Oh yeah. And so if you, if you buy seeds, buy them from an organic uh, grower, Baker Creek seeds have some really great seeds. You'd be surprised how many different kinds of radishes there are, how many different kinds of beets there are and carrots. You can get long carrots, you can get fat carrots, you can get little round carrots. And the flavor is just so much more amazing than what you get in the grocery store. And tomato as well, that's a given, you know. I was shocked when I got into gardening, like you're saying that, like, oh, I should get some radishes and you turn to their page on radishes and there's 50 different varieties. You're like, okay. exactly. I did not realize that there was this many radishes. And it's they always fun. That's different. my, that's one of my favorite things to do is go through seed catalogs and pick out new and unique things to, to grow. I like to grow weird stuff, really unusual stuff. What's that's just my personality. What's something that's really weird, but grows semi-decently that you think people should probably try exploring? You know what I grew one year that I, I really loved? I didn't grow it this year, though. It's Bigarelli. It's in the spinach. It's in the broccoli family. And it's like a broccoli, but it doesn't get heads on it. It's just the leaves. So they're great to use like you would use like you would use spinach. You could use it in a saute with garlic and butter and salt and pepper and soups. It's really great in soup and it's really high in uh, vitamins and it's really easy to grow and it's wow. hard to get rid of. <laughs> so <laughs> you get a, you get a little bit of good and a little bit of bad, you know, but yeah. it will reseed itself. And it's a really beautiful plant. It's about two to four feet tall and it's all green, really long sword like leaves. It's beautiful. How do you how do you spell that again? Spigarello, S-P-I-G-A-R-E-L-L-O, I think. Nice. And it will be it will be like in the catalog under broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cauliflower. It should be right around that. And so you're a master preserver, you said. What yes. is your favorite preservation thing? What what do you always crave? I, I do a lot of jams. I've always done a lot of jams and uh, pickles. I I love doing pickles during the summer, and I pickle all kinds of vegetables: cauliflower, carrots, radishes, beets. I love pickled beets. You know, you can get pickled beets in the cans in the supermarket and they're just disgusting. But if you make your own, it's really great. And Melissa's has this great product. If you don't want to grow your own beets, they have a packaged steamed and peeled beet that you can buy. And it's still firm enough that you can slice it for like a salad or something. Or you could cook it further and eat it hot. So I use that a lot in my classes. What's uh, What type of preservation, if someone's interested in doing that, do you recommend them getting into first? Uh, jams are probably the easiest. Pickles, pickles first and then jams. Sauerkraut is really easy to make at home. Mm -hmm. You just make it on, on the counter with, with water. There's a recipe in my book, What's in Your Pantry, on how to make sauerkraut or Google it. There's hundreds of sauerkraut recipes. And that will really get you into the art of fermentation and pickling. So there are two different things. One's a natural pickling, the fermentation. And then the pickling you can do with just vinegar. 
and a couple of other things. So those are the, probably the easiest. And jam is pretty easy. Jam is pretty much fruit and sugar and lots of sugar. Sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's why it tastes so good, right? Yeah, I was going to say jam is one of my favorite things, but it's also not one of the, the healthiest <laughs> things right. that you can eat, right? <laughs> if you do it the old-fashioned way and you cook it really, really slow and cook it way down, the, you get the natural fruit pectins to come out and make it nice and sweet without adding a lot of sugar. But that's a real long process. Hmm. And most people are really impatient in the kitchen. <laughs> Especially these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Debbie, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you sharing all of your expertise with us, talking about all the amazing things you do. And I'm sure everyone listening learned a lot. So I really appreciate uh, you taking time out of your, your busy day. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. It was really fun. And it was nice to meet you and have chats offline. Yeah, it was, uh, it was nice catching up and learn, and learn more about what you do. It's always fascinating. And if people want Thanks. to get a hold of you or learn more information um, or go on a food tour once things start up again, um, they can go to debskitchen.com is your website. Right. And are you on social media as well? I am. I'm Chef Debbie on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and on YouTube. Awesome. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise. And thanks to everyone for joining us and helping out and asking some questions. Um, I really appreciate it. This has been Making Bacon, all about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. Until next time, I'm Jason Logston. And don't forget, you can join us live every Thursday when we record all of these episodes. You can ask the guest questions, talk to the other bloggers in the comments, and even see our smiling faces. So join us Thursdays at makethatbacon.com slash live. Until next time, I'm Jason Logston, so see you next Thursday.